Welcome in, everybody, to Sad Times, the beginning of the episode where I talk like this really quietly because I just love the sound of my own voice attempting to do a radio voice, even though I'll never have a radio voice. My name is Kevin. Um, for those of you who have never listened to Sad Times, just a little primer on what we do here. Uh, Sad Times is a podcast where every week we do have a new guest on, or as we'll see a little bit later, uh, a returning guest, uh, where somebody comes on and they talk about a story or times in their life they were sad, upset, angry, frustrated, any number of things, and how they acted around that time, and kind of how maybe those who love them acted around that time as well. And we talk about that, and we don't try to diagnose the problem or solve the problem or judge the problem. We just allow the person uh, to tell their story in the hopes that people who are listening at home maybe hear something and say, oh, my goodness, I've gone through that, too. Uh, I feel a little less alone. Uh, We at Sad Times believe that the more that we tell our stories, even the the hard, fucked up shit, uh, you know, maybe the more empathetic we as a society will be. So that's that's kind of Sad Times. Uh, As always, we do have sponsors here at Sad Times. Uh, Our first sponsor is Shadow Comics. That's Shadow Comics, created and printed in the halls of Washington Grade School, which is no more. Shadow Comics were, of course, known for their amazing heroes, dastardly villains, and strange way that the letter R was written. <laughs> okay. All right. Uh, calm down over there. Uh, and our second podcast, uh, second sponsor is Brent Hand. Quite literal sponsor. Sad Times is brought to you by the time, expertise, generosity, and kindness of Brent Hand. Not only is he funny and co-creator and co-host of an amazing podcast named Hysteria 51, he's also the producer of whatever the fuck this podcast is. Serious thank you to Brent Hand for everything that he does on a day-to-day basis for Sad Times. We could not do it without him. All right, enough of these capitalist fucks like Brent. Uh, and let's get to our guest this week. As I kind of mentioned earlier, it is a returning champion, Mr. John Thomas Brown, JT Brown. John, how are you doing, man? I'm good. I'm good. I'm glad to be uh, to be back with you, hanging out, and uh, going to rehash a little bit. Yeah, and I like that we did make a, a pact that we're not going to speak to each other unless we both have microphones in front of us. <laughs> That's right. It's, a long, it's been a long time. Yeah. It's been a and long time. We should say that I, I met John Thomas in fifth grade, and I, th- I, I don't think the impetus, uh, I don't think I met over Shadow Comics, but you started that with Jason? Correct. Yep. With our friend Jason, and then I believe I tried to draw something for it, and it, it wasn't very good, but you had created this comic books uh, series that we made in fifth and sixth grade, or just fifth grade? Yes, yeah, so I think it was fifth and sixth, and then it kind of died out in seventh. I yeah. Because it, mm-hmm. it was one of those where it's, uh, you know, we were a bit like uh, the Roman Empire. We spread our, our borders too far. Right. And, it, uh, and, it and then imploded. the Christians came in and fucked it all up. <laughs> uh, just kidding. So, yeah, Shadow Comics, that's what. That's why uh, John Thomas was kind of laughing, if you could hear that. So, John, you were on the show in, I think it was about late 2019. Late 19, yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, and at that point, obviously, the world was a very different place. Yeah. Um, and nothing's really happened since then that I'm aware of. <laughs> uh, no, but in... in Boy, that was a bad joke. I'm sorry, everybody. Uh, 2020, obviously right around the corner. And, uh, you know, we've gone over it over and over again at times on Sad Times, but uh, very challenging year. Yeah. And at that time, you were working in a hospital. I was a uh, level one trauma center, and that uh, was kind of the <clears throat> hub uh, that drew from a lot of smaller uh, rural hospitals as well during that time. Yeah, and... It, when March, April of 2020, when we really had no idea what the hell was going on and we were seeing you know, 
everybody getting sick, so many people tragically dying. It had to have been terrifying and exhausting to be in a hospital every day, especially as you were saying, it's a place where people are feeding, not feeding, but smaller hospitals will send more. Yeah. Is it more difficult cases they send there or am I oversimplifying that? Uh, sometimes it's both. So we had times in which those hospitals were literally overrun and they were just sending out an SOS. Um, sending out an That's right, SOS. because they knew we were bigger. Um, or sometimes it's like we, we're, we're, we're tapped. We don't know what to do. Mm -hmm. Um, um, you know, and so we, we got to send them to to uh, a bigger. And then don't think that we are necessarily were the end all and be all because then sometimes we would have to send them to even bigger right uh, places. So and the, the hospital where you worked is where I was born. Were you born at that hospital? I was, mm -hmm. and uh, it's where I had a lot. I had a bad ear. I don't know if you knew that. <laughs> I, I do. I'm aware of yeah. your bad ear, and I had a lot of ear surgeries there as well, mm -hmm. and a hernia surgery, which you know I a do. lot about. I do. So 2020, you're doing that, and uh, you're working uh, in, a, I believe you call it a level one trauma center? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. Can you just, I think it's kind of obvious, but define what that means in a in a basic layman sense. Sure. In layman sense, the level one trauma center would be the, um, the worst injuries uh, would be coming to us. So they level it so that they kind of know where to send people. So if there's a really, really, really complex head injury or spinal cord injury or something like that, uh, you're going to want to go to a level one trauma center um, because they're going to have neurosurgeons on staff um, gotcha. all the time. So. Okay. And you worked with those people who were going through those traumatic injuries. I did. I was recovering. In, uh, yes. Inpatient rehab social worker for 15 years mm -hmm. um, on an inpatient rehab unit. Wow. Um, so it was, they would, Bless I wouldn't you. work with them at the front end, but on the back end when they were ready for rehabilitation, um, I was the social worker on that floor. So I'm sure while being there, you, you had obviously your day-to-day -day job, you know, those injuries aren't going to stop just because of a pandemic. Yeah. And you were around a number of healthcare workers who were probably just so overwhelmed and terrified, yes. I imagine. And that, you know, you, you're around when, when people are around me, I'll just use me as an example. When people around me, when I'm anxious or frustrated or whatever, it, it, it kind of drains the energy from the room. Was it was it kind of like a sense that there was just so much anxiety and stress, uh, along with all the tragedy around COVID, that it was just exhausting just to be there? It, it, very much so. Uh, and the sad part that I saw uh, is uh, there was some degree of camaraderie that pulled us together. But there, if, I'm be, if I'm being totally honest, there was also a degree uh, of emotional reactivity that drove us apart. And so um, and if it's interesting, we can talk about it. But uh, when we're in a uh, calm state of mind, we're able to look across in our brain, the various different ways in which we can choose to react to a situation. And we try to choose something that's commiserate with our values. Um, when we're in a heightened, emotionally heightened state, we're in reaction mode. Uh, mm -hmm. And so you say things that you can't unring the bell. You say things you uh, wouldn't have otherwise said. Uh, you snap at people. Uh, you um, hold grudges against people. So I did see some of that in what was otherwise a pretty tight knit yeah. group. Um, so you guys were close. Painful. And then that was kind of, there was some tearing at the seams in a sense because of that yeah. reactivity. I would say so. Um, there was, uh, again, it's, it's really complex and messy. So it, there wasn't like, oh, it was always camaraderie. Or it was always kind of falling apart. It waxed and waned depending on the person, the situation, gotcha. that sort of thing. But I'll just say among my peers, I saw, 
a stress response that was higher than anything I've seen in my 15-year career. You know, uh, I had a calm state of mind once in 1988. <laughs> uh, and it was right before the Hulkster and Andre got double eliminated in WrestleMania 4. That was deeply distressing. Because they both used the chair. Yep. Yeah, that was upsetting. I remember that. And it's unfair because uh, one-man gang got a bye. I know. How fair is that? I know. And then he hit Macho Man with a cane. Well, <laughs> we've created, we've gone into a whole other thing, that, which is what we usually talk about, which is sure. pro wrestling. Yep. So during 2020, there's the pandemic, and you're a father, and obviously the pandemic had a huge effect on children and schooling. Yeah. And I believe that fall of 2020, your middle child was supposed to be starting kindergarten, correct? Correct. And yeah. so your middle child did that on like video? Yeah. So um, my uh, my uh, kids at the time were, would have been, I think here, 2020 would have been one, five, and eight at that time. Mm -hmm. And so uh, my middle son that fall was uh, going to be going to kindergarten. And so he had to do that remotely uh, on the computer. Um, I think that probably any... I'm married to a teacher, and I can tell you that any uh, anybody that works in teaching will tell you that kindergarten is mainly about like how to be at school. I mean, more than academics, you know, like getting into the routine, correct? Right. How to listen, how mm -hmm. to follow, how to line up, how to do this, how to that. Mm -hmm. Kind of like learning those routines, and so it was very challenging. Um, his teacher was amazing and was a saint, and I my hat goes off to the guy. I have no complaints or criticisms of teachers during that time period. Um, I, I just can't imagine. I don't know how they did it. Yeah. Um, so he did the absolute best he could, but how much can you do with six-year-olds, you know, like uh, over video? They have never been in school before, other than just like preschool or whatever, but have never been in like actual school. So it was really tough. I felt like that um, was a challenging environment uh, in which to have your first experience with school. Yeah, to say the least. Yeah. And then you said your wife is a teacher. Was she teaching remotely at that time or was she more trying to help with your kids learn remotely yeah so that was another kind of painful dimension uh 2020 like for many people was a confluence of a lot of different difficult situations one of which was um we didn't have someone that could do child care because my wife worked and i worked um and so she had to take a leave uh because she's a special ed teacher um she had to take a leave um to take care of our kids because it wasn't going to be you know doable um otherwise and so, um, yeah, yeah, it was very challenging because she wasn't planning on leaving her, her job. She wasn't, uh, she wasn't unhappy at her job or anything like that, but I cannot imagine what it would have been like to try to have been a special ed teacher across zoom. I mean, that's, yeah, it's, I can't either. Yeah. And, and, and the fact that I, I, I know your wife, of course, and I know that she finds her work extremely rewarding, but to, to make the sacrifice, not even to just, Hey, I'm going to be here to help the kids, but also I'm going to take away what I do, uh, you know, daily for me uh, in meaning in the professional sense, Yeah, uh, you know, hat goes off to her as well. Yeah, for sure. Um, so, you know, that year as well, as if everything wasn't fucked up enough um you have you lost your stepdad yeah actually i have four deaths in 18 months um is that all <laughs> so yeah um both grandmas my maternal grandma my paternal grandma um my dad's twin brother my uncle and then my stepfather so all in a was that though the, and not to, that in that order is kind of how no uh, it would have been um my 
dad's mom first the summer of 2020 and then my mom's mom in October of 2020 and then my stepdad in November of 2020 so my mom's so my my mom her mom died and 6 weeks later her husband died so um and then um in the f- spring of 21 was when my uncle died wow it, you know your your stepdad. He was uh, he was a character, as, they, was. as they say, a card. Uh, <laughs> funny, funny motherfucker. Yeah. And uh, I've obviously known him or had known him for a long time. And I had always, I believe, known him when he was in business for himself and running the company. Pretty that, darn know. close. Yeah, I think he opened up his own company in when I was ten. I think so. It had so, been right before I met you. Yeah, so, maybe yeah. under ten. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and what was something that he would try to impart on you about that, about running his own business? Like, did he talk to you about that? And what, you know, it, that transition, because obviously before you he did that, he probably had another job, right? Yeah. So what was, the, what was the big takeaway he tried to kind of impart on you about that type of work? Yeah, so it's really funny, and we'll talk about how that kind of came full circle. But uh, he was uh, a uh, driven smart, hardworking guy that didn't take, uh, didn't take leadership from other people. Well, (laughs) I'll say that. So (laughs) very well said (laughs) to put it charitably. Um, and he was like, I really think I can do this. You know, I think I can do this better than it's being done. Uh, and so he opened his own pest control business and then it's still functioning. And that's why I was never invited over. (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, so he would tell me, it was really funny. He would, you know, now son, because we he married my mom when uh, I was five. And so mm-hmm. I was just as close with him as I was with my biological dad. And um, he would be like, now, son, uh, you know, making money for yourself is the greatest experience in the world. It's the most rewarding thing that you'll ever experience. And, um, you know, you don't work for anyone else and um, it's it's motivating, it's rewarding. And so, of course, like, oh, folksy wisdom. I, you know, so that I, was I, your I, kind of yes, that was my response. Like, okay. Like, oh, okay, yeah, right. Mm-hmm. I know things. <laughs> so, um, and then it turned out he was completely right. Yeah. And now I own my own company and uh, and he was 100% right, um, which is ironic, of course. Is I, it a pest chaos business? Uh, mine or yes, his? Yours. No, no. Uh, oh. Mine is a, is, a, is a counseling business. All so. right. We'll get to that yeah. in a second. Um, so you are in the hospital, so and you're working. And I think it's safe to say, uh, knowing you pretty well, everybody was stressed out in 2020. But I could tell with you that there was a number of things. And I, I couldn't put my finger on what it was. Was you had lost. You're a very ebullient person. You're very very animated uh you you generally see glass half full and that's that slowly started to dissipate throughout 2020 and why do you think that is yeah so uh i was uh experienced tremendous stress uh in the workplace the unknowns were just so difficult to deal with i mean we didn't we didn't know. I mean, we didn't know what we were dealing with. We didn't know. I mean, it sounds crazy to think about it now, but we didn't know if we were dealing with like an Ebola type thing that was going to, you know, you're going to be, you know, most people are going to be dead with it. We didn't, we just didn't know. Mm-hmm. Um, and people were getting quarantined and then they weren't going home. Like they were putting us up in hotel rooms so that we could um, like um, 
quarantine, you know, away from our families. And did um, you have to do that? I did not. No, oh, I did not good. get it during that time. But uh, and and the really challenging thing was there was this feeling uh, of fear that you're doing this thing and you're trying to do the right thing. You're trying to go to work and help people. But that on some level, are you going to then be a carrier of this unknown illness to the people that you love? I recall that very well. Very, very um, difficult to come home. I mean, I would come home and I would cleanse my shoes and I would wash my clothes. And I, But I mean, when you look, I mean, there's no way that at that time, my, you know, one and a half year old daughter's not going to want to crawl up in my lap and mm-hmm. not going to want to hug me. And, you know, my boys aren't going to want to wrestle. Kids don't know that it's a global pandemic, you know. Yeah. So, um, so that was really challenging to uh, to feel like <clears throat> there's a chance that I was bringing home something really dangerous uh, to the people that I love. So even as like I think we as as people who who do work the nine to five or what have you, you're driving home, you're processing through your day, and you're able to kind of hopefully let it go a little bit. It sounds like you were in the car and you're you're almost literally carrying COVID with you or that's your yeah, fear. Sure. And so you can't even distance yourself and put yourself in the, okay, I'm going home now mindset. Is, is that safe to say? It is. Yeah. So usually I was really quite good. The first 13 years of my career at the hospital is quite good at that. Like I could take off my social worker hats and put on my dad and husband hat and pretty well tuck it away. There's exceptions of course, but um not so uh, during that time period. It was just ever present. Felt really, really claustrophobic. You know, yeah, in that way. So you never got a break. No breaks. No breaks. Yeah. Um, and then there was also the fear of um, early on when we got uh, the first big wave, because uh, at first it was it didn't hit our area that quickly, um, but later in that year it started to really ramp up, mm-hmm. and it got to a level where we as employees didn't know like. Do we have enough space, even if we turn offices into, you know, I remember you almost daily telling us about that. That was like a real, a real fear. Luckily, did not reach that. We were able to accommodate via using like um, some clinic rooms, you know, that we had to, and we were able to, to surf, you know, on that wave. But, uh, but we didn't know at the time, November of 2020, we did not know what was going to happen in terms of our ability to uh, deal with the wave that was coming in. Yeah. And uh, I think it's, I think you, when we spoke earlier today, you referred to it as a misery of the unknown. Yeah. Yeah. Just, it was definitely it, that. It, I think people listening to this can understand, maybe not in a hospital setting. Uh, I know that misery of the unknown is pretty much my 20s and 30s and now sure. 40s. <laughs> so it's, that's what drives my anxiety is it, it's, there's something outside of my control. Yeah. And uh, to have that, all day, every day on top of work stress mm-hmm. is is a whole hell of a lot to deal with. And then come home to, as I believe you said, a one-year-old, a five-year-old, and an eight-year-old. Yeah. And, and then your your wife who has been with uh, the kids all day. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so you're going there and, you know, you, you and I, you're going there? What the fuck does that mean? <laughs> you're going to work. You're living your life as best you can as we all were during that time. Now, you and I are... You're you're one of my I, I have what I call reading heroes. Uh, you're one of my reading heroes. You've always so? been a well. You're you're very well read, and you read pretty. You always have a book going. Yeah, and uh, you are somebody I always looked up to for that reading, and and your insistence on I will make this a part of my life. Sure, 
for me, I have to do that. It's, it's, it's a survival mechanism as, as much as anything. Uh, you know, I, and I've read some of my favorite books are considered, I promise we're going to get here. Some of my favorite books are considered what are called, what's called postmodern. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But can you tell us kind of wh- what is the definition of postmodernism so, it, to your understanding? To my understanding. So it, it's quite broad, uh, but I would say uh, if I were to boil it down, postmodernism is uh, a belief that there is not objective truth. There's not objective um, meaning, uh, but instead the only experience is subjective uh, and thus uh each subjective experience has to be treated as if it's truth. Would you say that that's, you've read some books on postmodernism. Would you say that that is? To be honest accurate? with you, I don't know if I've read any books on postmodernism, okay. but I've read a lot of stuff that is defined as postmodernism. And I've seen some, forgive me, really bad postmodern plays. <laughs> sure. Uh, so uh, that, that. Does that I, jive with what you've seen? Yeah, I, I think that's fair. And I think that one of the things in my understanding very briefly of postmodernism, again, I am no expert, is that it was very much in literature as a way to reflect the world, right? Art is supposed to reflect the world and explain it to us in a different way. Mm-hmm. It wasn't meant to be like, this is how the world should be. Yeah, so if we, to, not to get too nerdy, but um, I think sometimes people don't realize how much um, modern, the modern Western value set reflects the 70s and 80s French postmodernists, particularly Derrida and um, Foucault. Um, and they were kind of like the punk rockers of philosophy. They're kind of like, whatever that stuff you think is, is stupid. And so <laughs> we think this other thing. And I don't think that like, um, I feel like people that take postmodernism as the um, way in which to uh, nation build or you know, have a country uh, are essentially being like, we should elect Sid Vicious as president. <laughs> <laughs> I see what you're saying. Yeah. Um, and he's not even a real punk in my opinion. Yeah. Go ahead. But uh, yeah, there's a, there is a, uh, I, f- I feel like sometimes people don't realize like what they're doing in the context of very like rigid empirical modernist philosophers. And they were railing against that. Those two in particular. You said the seventies and eighties, like 1970s, 1980s. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. Okay. Yeah. And you're somebody who I, you have a great interest in, you know, world history, history in general. And do you feel like that has with the subjective versus objective, does it does it provide a cognitive dissonance for you when you're looking at something and say, well, I believe the objective truth to be this. And then it, the cognitive dissonance maybe comes in for you when people say, yes, but this person believes differently and you you need to adhere to that as well. Is it am I getting that right? I think so. Uh, so I guess the the rub is. uh I think that probably postmodernism is a good personal philosophy in our pursuit of meaning that is subjective, which I believe is absolutely true and is uh, is uh, cooperative with the type of therapy that I do, right? I mean, it really is a question of what's meaningful to you. But I find it really scary when that bleeds into hard science, um, uh, healthcare, things that require empiricism. Gotcha. Okay. So I hear what you're saying. And uh, just for our poor, poor listening audience, I'm going to move away from postmodernism and our our theorizing over it. But I do want to talk about how that may be feeling. There was a feeling in this country, probably, and I could be remembering wrong, 
that there there was just a cognitive dissonance going on in 2020 for any number of things, unfortunately. And I'm sure as you are like me, a pretty anxious person. So that had to, on some level, have fed into your general anxiety. Definitely. You know, I mean, it felt like everything was falling apart and it felt like everything that we had known uh, and the values that we had shared uh, were being, um, uh, you know, kind of, um, uh, so again, going back to specifically Foucault and Derrida, they're also um, deconstructionists, right? So they're, uh, they like to deconstruct different things and show everything that's wrong with it. And so I felt like the entire world you know was being deconstructed during the time of covid and that was very challenging you know that was very uh as someone trying to raise small children uh i didn't know what the future held for my kids and i and that was an extremely difficult anxiety producing experience yeah as somebody speaking for myself who no joking aside i'm i i just don't think i could handle being a parent for anybody who's not even quote unquote an anxious person, sure. right? It's an anx- it's an anxiety provoking daily uh, a thing that you do. So when you feel like that was falling apart, and then you you fear that you can't at least tell your kids X, Y, and Z. Was this this is you? I'm talking about yeah. like that had to have ca- like did that cause you a lot of consternation and sleepless nights? Or yeah, it was challenging. Uh, you know, I mean. Um, Culture has changed very, very rapidly. Um, and I sort of joke that I feel like maybe three or four generations of culture have changed, you know, over a 10 to 15 year period. So uh, the values that I grew up with and that I care about are something I want to impart to my kids. Uh, but it's challenging uh, because um, uh, I don't know what the future holds for um, the kind of uh, that traditional value set. And if that's something that's going to be received well or not. Um, so, uh, it was, it was difficult. I felt like my whole world was upended, uh, in many ways. And, and so kind of that ebullient brand, I used ebullient again, I probably didn't say it right, but I used it right. (laughs) That person who has a lot of joy, that person who is very energetic and very happy to see the people he loves and even the people he doesn't know, he just, you always greet people so warmly and everything like that. I believe that you told me by about early 2021, so we're coming up on almost a year into the pandemic, mm-hmm. uh, your wife had had kind of said to you that you don't, it seems like you have no joy left. Yeah, so she really kind of had an intervention with me, and that's really what kind of kick-started uh, my, my renaissance, I guess we'll say. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've been married uh, for, well, now for almost 18 years at the time for, I guess, would that be almost six, uh, 16 at the time? Mm-hmm. And, um, and she just said, she's like, you just have no joy. She's like, you come home and you're just so unhappy and you're heartbroken and you're anxious and you're sad. And she's like, and it's just robbing all of us as a family unit, all the joy that we would experience. Um, it's just, it's been a sieve uh, on that. And while that was painful to hear, I take that really seriously um, because she's my closest confidant and she knows me very, very, very well. And, um, and so that really got me thinking. I was like, so I've, I, I thought for sure that I would retire, you know, I thought I was a lifer, you know, in medical social work and that I would retire uh, as medical social worker. Um, but 15 years is a long time and the last two damn near killed me. And so um, at that point, I started to think, I don't, I can I do this? <laughs> I mean, I don't know if I can do this for 
for you know much longer. Um, and then I had to think about well, what in the hell else will I do? <laughs> it's right. literally all I've ever done. Yeah, uh, you know, which was difficult to think about. So did you then at that time? So your your wife kind of gives you that tough love, not even tough love that. Hard I'm truth. really concerned to you. Yes. Yeah. yeah. There's no more joy. Yeah. So maybe around that time, did you maybe, I think you were saying like your ideas began to percolate. What can I do? And is it kind of a callback to what your, your stepdad had been imparting on you all those yeah. years ago? Isn't that funny? So yeah, yeah. it, uh, ironically, I was, um, just informally meeting. So again, just to give context, uh, my colleagues, nursing colleagues, therapy colleagues, et cetera, uh, there was a bottleneck on mental health services and I saw them suffering horribly. And so informally, I would just sometimes meet with my colleagues and just talk with them. Just to listen to them and mm-hmm. let them vent a little bit. Yep. And just yeah. to talk about some of the basic principles of ACT, just to see if that's something that can, as a friend more than anything, um, but just see if that's something that can help them get through their day because it was like, you know, it was like being on a ship I mean, <laughs> as far as like, it just didn't seem like there was any help around and we were all out to sea together. And so I was like, well, I can, I can't take extra nursing shifts because I'm not a nurse, right? but I can be a listening ear and be supportive and help with some skills that might be you know, helpful to get through this. Uh, and I found a tremendous amount of satisfaction uh, and peace in doing that. And I just, that got me thinking, I'm like, well, I really, truly believe that the occupational hazards of working in healthcare are unique. And much like people in the military, police officers, firemen, we don't see normal stuff. Like we just don't, like the stuff that we see, children being shot, people having their heads ran over, like that's not a normal thing for people to experience. You're basically getting, in a lot of sense, inundated with trauma every day. Yes, correct. And so I was like, Maybe I, I thought, A, this is a novel idea. B, I'm going to fail at it because I don't like to do marketing. And I don't understand things. Uh, but I was like, I think there is <laughs> Me too. A, a niche. Just ask Brent. <laughs> a niche for someone that has worked in healthcare who is a social worker, or a psychologist, or a, you know, LCPC, uh, to specifically see people in healthcare uh, and to be, uh, and other people too, but to really specialize in that unique brand of trauma that you experience as um, a healthcare worker. Yeah. And to going back to kind of the, what you were saying a moment ago about, I, I met with people and I just listened to them. It, it did make me think of something uh, when I got COVID the first time was in um, October of 2020, I was in Dallas on a work trip. And can I tell a funny story about that? Uh, you may go ahead. Okay. Well, I, You know, we were still very much in the realm of we don't really understand this. There's no vaccines, blah, 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 blah. And uh, used I sent a text to you and and uh, you sent a text. by, Hey, do you have a minute? to? Hey, man, do you have a minute to talk? (laughs) And you called me immediately. And it wasn't it was only how are you doing? How are you feeling? Are you feeling scared? It just genuine kindness from the word go, uh, which is pretty much your M.O. And it was just some of the most supportive, you know, 10 minutes or whatever it was that we spent on the phone as I was getting driven to where I was going to stay in a hotel room for 10 days. And, and I, I have to imagine that that type of support that you, without even being asked, offered up, you were giving to your colleagues and they must have walked out of those rooms when they spoke with you and then their, their problems are not solved, but they were probably like, oh, okay, somebody understands. I feel less alone. Yeah. So I think that um, the way I do my sessions, uh, because I feel like clinicians sometimes um, 
fail to get the most out of their sessions by doing one of two things, by either being only you're paying for a bestie and it's just like, yeah, that's right. You're right. Damn right. You know, like that for right. 50 minutes mm-hmm. or by only being like, Kevin, let me impart this knowledge to you I'm for ready. 50 minutes. Yeah. So, uh, so I think that probably you have to um, uh, shoot the middle. And uh, so you give like I usually do half of my time is processing. So it's, you know, it is the unloading, the, the, um, uh, the kind of word vomit. I jokingly call it though. Sometimes I try to be careful because I don't want to offend anyone, but I jokingly call it confessional without the Hail Marys. So, you know, Amen. people just getting, yeah. <laughs> getting out, uh, out what they need to get. Uh-huh. Um, and then the other half is like, okay, so then how can we look at this through an acceptance and commitment therapy lens? What are things that you can work on uh, to respond in a more workable way to what you're experiencing, et cetera? Um, so I try to I try to integrate both. Um, and that seems to be, because I ask, I I, list, I solicit feedback from people. And I say, hey, if you want you know, just uh, to be listened to, please tell me. And if you want just a quote unquote teaching, please tell me. But most people land in a space where I think they want both of those things roughly in equal measure. Well, as somebody with some pretty good OCD, I, I can tell you that I wish my therapist gave me way more affirmation, but she knows <laughs> that that doesn't help. Yeah, no, it God doesn't. damn it. Quit that relief seeking. Uh, quit well, it. I, I'll quit it when I'm dead. <laughs> you said you had a funny story about COVID? Oh, yeah. So, so uh, funny story is when you were uh, in quarantine in the hotel room, um, I would just roll and I would share the text that you would send me with Courtney and she would just die laughing. Um, and uh, it would, I remember one, I remember two very specifically. And one of them was, which is like random in the, in an evening. It was like, did you know there's six Mission Impossible movies? I've watched them all. <laughs> I did watch them all in one day. And then the other one was, I haven't worn shoes in eight days. I didn't wear them for 11 total days. <laughs> it was fucking amazing. It was so great. Oh, man. I, I didn't Quarantine, have, weird times. It huh? was weird fucking <laughs> times, man. And I had a big, beautiful beard. Yeah. So you get this idea. You actually do it in practice, so to speak, mm-hmm. with your coworkers. And you say, what if there's a niche here for yeah. people who are struggling with this? So you're like, you know what? I'm going to start my own practice. What does that, what were your main fears when you made that decision, when you discussed it with your wife and you made that decision, you're going to move forward. What were your main fears? Bankruptcy. Okay. <laughs> so, All right. Uh, I mean, no, not really, because I had some uh, some cushions, so to speak, to land on. But uh, failure, for sure, was that like, I'm going to open this up, I'm going to spend this money, and nobody's going to come. And then it's just going to be a, a failure, and then it's going to be a huge blow to my ego, and it's also not going to have been a good thing for us financially. Because keep in mind, at that point, uh, I am still the only breadwinner at that point. So um, your wife was not back to she was uh, not working work in the classroom. Yep, okay, not back to work. Mm-hmm. So, um, so it's super scary. But my, I mean, that's the incredible thing when you have a a spouse that really honestly loves you and is cheering for you, and like she's just like, we'll figure it out. I mean, like, I mean, she's kind of just like, I, I, I need you alive and happy and joyful. Like you, know what I mean, um. Let me tell you a really cool story about when I felt like I knew I was getting better. Um, but uh, so, yeah, no, I was well supported by family, which helped tremendously. But, yeah, that was my big fear was that uh, there isn't a, a niche or uh, I'm just going to be so ham fisted in my marketing stuff because I don't like that. And I'm shy about being on the Internet and that sort of thing uh, that it's not going to be successful. That was my biggest fear. Yeah. And 
it's interesting because I, I, people, we, all right, starting over. It's interesting. Uh, don't even cut that shit out, Brent. That's what people come to this show for. Uh, it's interesting because I think we're, we're taught to, to, to some degree, you, you go to school, you grow up, you get a job and you work that job. And obviously we're far, we continue to be further and further removed from that. Like, you know, there's no gold watches really anymore. People don't stick, et cetera. Companies don't take care of their, their employees the way they used to, in my opinion, et cetera. But I think one of the scariest things for me, when you told me you were going to do that, I was like, you're, I was thinking to myself, how brave is it to actually step outside the paradigm of what society expects of us in some degree and do it yourself? That 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 is, whether you're faking it or not, that's self-confidence. And fear of failure is right. I yeah. mean, it's scary as fuck. Yeah, it was. I mean, I think I told you I felt like maybe three quarters of the way through, like starting to do all the infrastructure work that you have to do to start something like this. I felt like a high stakes gambler that had like three quarters of my chip stack in the pot. And I was like, well, I got a pair of tens. I mean, I, I it's pretty good. I, I, I guess I'm all in. <laughs> like, yeah. And when you said you're three quarters of the way done, and these are like just form after form after form. Yeah. After form. So it's, uh, it's, there's cost and there's the practical things of finding, you know, finding your office and, um, going through the process of getting, uh, you know, uh, establishing a business and starting a PLLC um, and just all of the different stuff that you have to do um, to um, to be able to, to start a business. Uh, and I knew zero things about that when I started. That's so how did, where did you go to find those things out? I mean, is it as simple as a Google or so a I Google? Took a course. Uh, um, I took a course and that helped a lot. It was basically, it was just a course from the uh, National Association of Social Workers just about starting basically your own private practice. Um, and that, I mean, I couldn't have done it without, I mean, there's no way. I, would, I didn't know where to start. Like they told you here, here, if I'm hearing you right, uh, it's like here are the 20 boxes that you need to check more and here's or less. how you check them. Yeah, basically. Well, and it was really an attorney nice. and a social worker that talked about how they did that basically together and it was where did you um, did you find that online or yeah where? i found it on uh, uh the national association of social workers had it and um yeah it was indescribably helpful <laughs> in terms of like knowing where to start was that um how long was that class i think it was only three hours oh that's um, it yeah wow so, which is yeah i don't like to devote a lot of time to anything <laughs> other than pro wrestling and the cubs yeah and reading and hating bread and i did a lot more stuff Beyond that, but that was like the the starting point. So would you say that it's like, okay, I'm going to go into this quote, great unknown. And then you're like, oh my goodness, look at this class that is presented to me. You take the class and was there at least a modicum of relief when you got out of that class to say, okay, I understand a little better. And now I know where to start, yes. which way to go. Yeah. It was definitely less stressful being like having a map, having a roadmap, uh, mm -hmm. you know, and was there tar blueprint. Tartarian on the map? <laughs> there were, there was not. Okay. Uh, mm -hmm. So, um, I had like at least some kind of blueprint for, excuse me, um, what I needed to do. And I'm good at following steps, you know, but I needed the steps to even know where to start. But what I found the really, really challenging part was sometimes, you um, you couldn't do this step without this other step happening first. So you have to wait on that. And that's going to take six weeks. But once you have that, then you have to go and you have to do that. But there's a time sensitive amount. And you have, there's always like some reason why you couldn't just go step one, done. Step two, step, you, you had to wait and wait. And Did wait you find some wait. comfort in that though? I, knowing you, I would assume that 
maybe not the waiting, but the fact that you know that uh, A has to happen before B can happen. B has to happen before C can happen. I think once you understood that outside of the waiting and patience, did you find comfort in that? Yes, but it's it's messy though. Cause then it'd be sometimes it'd be like, well, C actually technically needs to happen you know, simultaneously with B. And uh-huh. then so, yeah, I mean, so there was like, um, it was a little bit challenging in that way. And honestly, some of that's such a whirlwind because I just was like, I don't even feel like I remember all of those <laughs> steps um, because I was just um, really, really absorbed in it and trying to get through each day uh, to to get that up and running. Okay. So you had the, the conversation with your wife in early 21 where she kind of says, I'm not seeing the joy anymore. Yeah. You have the idea. You're thinking back on what your stepdad said. Mm-hmm. And you'd already been helping some of your coworkers just, uh, I believe pro bono is a term. Yeah, more or less. Yeah. yeah. Um, so then you move in at what point are you like, okay, um, I've done steps a through Z I'm ready to go. I'm going to like, did you leave the, the hospital where, where you were working permanently fully? Like when, when did you start your own practice? And did that mean like that was it? Or did you do some work on the side still with the hospital? Yeah. So that's a great question. So it, the, um, I was still very tight with my rehab colleagues and with the leadership there who I have tremendous respect for. Uh, and so I actually stayed on, it helped them because I stayed on part-time because they didn't have a replacement right away. Uh, and it helped me because I didn't have any clients. So, you know, for a while I still worked part-time um, as I slowly built up uh, my client list. Um, and that helped, uh, that helped tremendously to have that, uh, that landing spot. And how long was that between when you had that discussion with your wife and when you kind of put out the old shingle, as they say? Yeah, so I left formally the hospital in November of 21. Mm-hmm. And then um, I started seeing my first clients, I'm going to guess February of 22, January or February of 22. Mm-hmm. Um and then I was busy enough to not uh, be able to work part-time anymore in, I'm going to say, May or June of 22. So, so. that's about six to seven months yeah. you were able to turn that around. So mm-hmm. it's almost like maybe eight months between the conversation and starting your practice. Uh-huh. Pardon me. And then six to seven months. Now, we know the world is only 6,000 years old. <laughs> Oh, uh, but in the scheme of things, so that's, let's call it 15 months from when you had the conversation with your wife to, uh-huh. hey, this is what I'm doing. Sure. How accomplished did you feel once you got to that point where, and I know you did not want to let your coworkers down, but yeah. when you were able to fully say to them, I unfortunately can no longer help here. I have a practice that I have yeah, to give all my time to. Incredible. Because that's the thing is I, you want to know what my robust marketing budget is? Uh, $30. $30 a month. Exactly. Is that that's, real? that's literally all I spend oh, yeah, about on marketing. That? So, um, so I had no idea. I was like, gosh, am I just going to inch along on people that I, you know, that I at least kind of knew of through the hospital or, uh, but it, it wasn't, there's just such an incredible need. Um, and if you do it well, honestly, that is the best marketing you can do is just right. do a good job. I mean, people will, people will tell other people about it if you do a good job. Yeah. Maybe somebody goes to see you, um, they're out to dinner with somebody and they're like, God damn, Kevin, you look finally not stressed for the first time in forever. Well, let me tell you about who I've just yeah. been going to speak to. And oh my God, I know that you and I worked at X place before you should go talk to them. Yes. Is that kind of what you're that saying? Is the majority of how I get my clients is that exact conversation. Okay. And then are you full up? With clients, I'm, yeah, I'm full. So I um I I don't have a waiting list because I'm 
full at just the, you know, I'm saying just the top. Um, and I had a couple of new uh, referrals that wanted to be seen. I said, I can do a waiting list, but they understandably were like, I need to, I want to see somebody sooner. So uh, it's not full in like, can't accommodate anyone else for the foreseeable future, but full as in like, I am at my max for what I uh, am able to do right mm -hmm. now. Next question. Do you need a director of marketing? <laughs> and I'll do it for $30 a month. Gotcha. That's a good, it's a good deal. Yeah. I don't know how to market anything. So again, ask Brent and um, okay. So I know that we've been, kind of just really going through timeline stuff here. The reason that I'm doing that, at least why I'm deliberately doing that is I think it's one of the important and amazing lessons here is that you said, you know what, there are some risks here, but this is what I believe. And this is how I would like to move forward with my life. And I think that a lot of people, especially people listening to this, right, would maybe think, well, and I know that I've had that thought. Well, there's no way I could do that. I'll just continue to do what I do. And I understand that we're glossing over a lot of secondary factors that that are going to hold people back from that. But if it is something that it is something you're looking to to not even go into business yourself, but just make that change for yourself. It's you're just a wonderful explanation of of how it's possible that you faced your fears, whether they be small about like, well, you know, how do I fill out this form to, uh, I believe you had told me you were really worried that you were going to miss something on a form that's going to sure. get you get into, you know, inadvertently. Yeah. Right. So I, I just think it's important to show that you did this in a pretty damn short period of time and, and kudos to you for that. Yeah. It's, so it's, uh, I would say that my stepdad was absolutely right about all of it. And what I mean by that is, the incredible, rewarding, empowering sense of running something exactly how you want it um, by your own ethics, um, by your own compass, um, and making money based on what you're providing uh, and that going directly to you and to the people you love is incredibly empowering. Um, and uh it's fascinating. So I would work sometimes at the hospital and yeah, the hospital was a physical grind too, but, and if I had to work late and I had to work 10 hours, I would be like, Oh my gosh, I'm so exhausted. Get me the hell out of here. You know, I'm, I'm, and sometimes I will find myself doing stuff in my practice and I'll have worked 10 or 11 or 12 hours. And I won't, I will be like, I, I was great. Like, and I think about all the ways I was like, I got to see people. I got to do it in a way that I feel like is, um, is the right way. Um, I made money for my family and I, like, I just feel so tremendous, uh, such a tremendous sense of ownership and empowerment, um, that it doesn't feel like work in many ways. It feels like, um, like something where I get to have great conversations with people and help be kind of, uh, um, a shepherd through difficult times in life. Um, and then I make excellent money doing it. Um, and it, it's, uh, I, I can't explain how great it is to work for yourself. I mean, it's, it's remarkable. Yeah. And then doing the work that you're doing, which is, it sounds like, you know, I'm obviously not one of your clients. Uh, trust me, you don't want to deal with that, <laughs> but it sounds like after most sessions, it's like, wow, I made a difference of some sort. Yeah. So, um, or maybe it's over a longer period. Tell me about that. Yeah. So it's a bit different. When I was working in the hospital, that was very task oriented. So you got a little bit more direct, um, 
satisfaction. So I'd be like, I helped get social security disability. I helped get that wheelchair. You had really concrete tasks. So when you're in the counseling or therapy realm, the uh, the payoff is much less concrete. So that's a little harder. That's something I had to adjust to. What do you mean less concrete? So uh, it's really a subjective experience. Um, some people get really, really excited uh, about forms and about you know the things that they, uh, oh, I want you to fill this out and tell me exactly how much it's improved in each area. I tend to uh. jokingly, I tell my clients this a lot. I say, uh, if I could just give you the diagnosis of messy human shit, uh, that's what I would give everyone because that's ultimately what we're we're all doing, right. what we're all experiencing. And again, that kind of goes back to like, I'm not anti-subjectivity. I think that that's a real thing and an important thing in an individual's life. Um, and so um, it's a subjective experience therapy uh, and um, they have to be able to share with me what they feel like they are, uh, what they feel like they need, what they feel like is helping, what's not. Um, and that's why I, every six sessions or so, I jokingly say I do the state of the therapy address, uh, which is where I, I solicit, I say, how's this going? How's the frequency working for you? Do you need more of this? Do you need less of that? What do? What can I do better? Um, because you have to have a humbleness. Um, I feel like there's definitely like a, if you go in with the um, expert mentality, you risk overlooking the, um, the signals and the bids that your clients are giving you. Mm-hmm. I don't like this. This isn't effective. This doesn't resonate with me. You know what I mean? You have to be uh, flexible enough to respond. How many standing ovations did you get during the state of the uh, therapy? therapy that, well, not not many. I got a few uh, sitting chuckles instead. So <laughs> Fair enough. And that's interesting. What you just said is like, yes, um, you're a trained social worker and you've done it outside of, you know, in the hospital setting for 15 years. So it's very fair to say you have some expertise in this area, but it must be, it must keep you on your toes to know that, yes, I know about X, Y, and Z, but really what I'm here to do it. Tell me if I'm wrong about this. Sure. Is it really what I'm here to do is listen and then work off of that? Or is it, is that too simple uh, a, a, a way to describe the work you're doing? Well, so if I take you through kind of a process, um, if possible, it depends on what the situation is. Sometimes I don't do this, but usually I'll start the process, do an assessment, of course, first. Um, that's the first session. And after that, I try to go through kind of the six primary dimensions of acceptance and commitment therapy and a skill that's associated with each dimension, because that gives a foundation uh, of the shared language uh, that we're going to be using. Um, because I do think that has broad application to virtually everybody's situation, mm -hmm. but I try to listen and be responsive because they don't have to be done in the same order. As an example, some people that are really struggling with having clarity of their values, what do I care about? Why am I doing this? I feel no sense of purpose, et cetera. That would clue me into, okay, we need to do values related work first. Or if someone else says, I cannot get this thought out of my mind. It's always there. It's just completely uh, engulfing everything I am. I think about it every 30 seconds. Then I know that's cognitive that's cognitive fusion. So we're going to need to work on work uh, that is focused around trying to diffuse from those. How, how do feelings. I fix that, John? Fix the cognitive diffusion? Yeah. Well, just I, fix it for me right now. Well, I'll have to, I'll have to charge you. Okay. How much? Uh, that's fine. <laughs> that's fine. That'll be fine. Brent, get the checkbook. Okay. Gotcha. Get real fast. Like, what are those six? Tell me. I'm sorry. You said... Uh, Acceptance? No, so, that's not right. Yeah, what I can you give say? you a, and we talked about this briefly 
in our in our last yeah. uh, time, but um, acceptance of commitment therapy is my primary approach. ACT is what it's also called. Um, it I would call it a nephew to CBT, uh, but maybe not a direct, not a child cognitive to CBT, behavioral, behavioral therapy. therapy. Mm-hmm. Um, but the way it differs uh, is that the ultimate upshot of acceptance of commitment therapy uh, is uh, no amount of reasoning or arguing or um, telling yourself to stop, telling yourself to get over it, um, talking yourself out of it. No amount of that is going to result in you thinking the thought less or experiencing the feeling less mm-hmm. um, for reasons that are uh, based on neurobiology. Uh, that is all going to embed that story into your hippocampus with stronger emotion. Mm-hmm. So ironically, what that leaves us with is how do we respond um, to difficult thoughts and feelings in a way uh, that is commiserate with our values, that is non-reactive, and that sends a different message to our hippocampus. This is okay. I can accept this. I can make space for this. You can stay as long as you want. Anxiety, everything's fine. Uh, Because if you can start sending that message instead, uh, you slowly tell the hippocampus, let go of that tag. This isn't that important. This isn't something that you need. The more that you argue with it or tell yourself, uh, I can't think this. What does this say about me? Uh, I'm such a terrible person. Um, or I have to escape this. I can't. I need relief. I, it's terrible. The more that you do that, the more you are increasing your emotion, which sends the message to um, the hippocampus, who is kind of like a voyeuristic bully. And so he gets the message. He's got his popcorn. He's like, oh, this is really important. Oh, boy, look how upset he is. Yeah. Uh Um, So the more that you do that, the more that you send a message to the hippocampus. It's important. We got to think about it more. We got to figure it out. But as I always tell people, I say, uh, I don't think why you're on my couch is because of a lack of will, I'm guessing. It's probably not you didn't reason hard enough. Do you know what I mean? Like, uh, nor is there something where you're going to reason your way out and you're going to be like, oh, that's the perfect argument. I just won my case. But isn't (laughs) that the way feelings work? It's not, but it continues. I'm old as hell and it Mm -hmm. continues to be generally almost always the first way I Because you're trying to use your prefrontal cortex Uh to solve limbic system and hippocampus problems. And those are two completely different parts of the brain. Uh, that are connected, but they don't, you cannot solve. What you're talking about, the prefrontal cortex is great for building bridges or for, um, you know, um, constructing spires. I mean, whatever. It's that problem solving, that um, reason, concrete reason intelligence is great in so many ways, but it is ineffective for feelings. Okay. Yeah, that's, and I want to use a very brief example of something that I was terrified of very briefly as a kid, but terrified of it. And it's absurd. Uh, I was terrified. I was going to stick my head in a tornado siren and then the tornado siren was going to go off and I would lose my hearing. Yeah. Right. Sure. And don't look at me like that, Brent. (laughs) And I, it it terrified me. Mm -hmm. And the more I thought about it, the more I got terrified. So let's just say, and I don't mean to put you on the spot. No, you're fine. Let's just say I come to you with that problem. Mm -hmm. And again, I think a lot of people who who listen to any podcast have weird, uh, strange fears uh-huh. that maybe they're even embarrassed about, totally. and they try to solve them themselves uh-huh. instead of what doing. So if I came to you and said, I'm afraid I'm going to stick my head, and I keep worrying about it, I keep picturing it, I can't stop picturing it, 
how, what would be just a couple things you would tools, I guess you would say to help me through that. And I understand that this is not going to solve the problem, just something mm-hmm. how you would start. Yeah. So, um, the, I would start by explaining some of the neuro um, biology to you. Uh, and we talked about this the first time, so I won't belabor it too much, but I will say that, um, that vivid thought, uh, of you sticking your head in the siren and losing, uh, your hearing probably was something that you could vividly imagine and you could think about and you could think about how bad you would feel if that happened. And you'd think about what it'd be like to be deaf and how you never get to listen to music. Oh yes. That all probably felt very vivid. Very. And if something is vivid enough, you can set off your amygdala. And that's the car alarm in your brain. I hate my amygdala. Yeah, that amygdala is a pain in the ass. Yeah, it's um, a real fucker. The amygdala is useful when there's real danger, right? So, right. like, let's say you, uh, let's say you um, were walking along and you st- like along the edge of a mountain and you stepped on some loose gravel and you slid like halfway down. Your amygdala would fire and you'd be scared half to death. And if that after that point, you would be very careful because that would be tagged in your hippocampus as. This is really dangerous. Right. I'm really scared. So you don't have to reinvent the wheel. You know, mm-hmm. It's tagged in your hippocampus. But we get it atta- attached to stuff that's not actually dangerous because we have vivid imaginations. And we have less mortal danger than we did uh, in our human and mm-hmm. proto-human um, ancestors of, you know, a million years ago. Right. So. Fight or flight. And I'm, I'm not going to go deep into that, but we, we have actual very... F- uh, far less instances of actual fight uh-huh. or flight yep. than we did, which is why that uh, uh, evolved in our brains. But, but the instinct still remains because right. evolution is a slow process. So um, it, we don't have as much mortal uh, danger. We will at some point. I mean, that's sure. the thing is yeah. societies come and go. So yeah. uh, so it's going to probably outlast uh, our comfort. Okay. Um, and um, so, it, so it remains. Uh, and I do think if we can think of something vividly enough, um, we can set off our amygdala, which then in turn gets encoded into the hippocampus. Uh, oh, this is dangerous. That siren is dangerous. Like it's um, also, if you have other emotions, the hippocampus likes not just anxiety, but all sorts of emotions. So if you had shame with that, if you had like, wouldn't it be weird? Everyone would think I was a weirdo if I went and stuck my head in there. Like, wouldn't people think I was crazy? You know what I mean? Shame is very powerful, as powerful as anxiety in terms of tagging. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that also have a, have, has an evolutionary base. Um, if you wanted to survive uh, when we were in our hunter-gathering stage, you kind of had to be part of the group. Yeah. And so if you screwed up uh, and uh, the group didn't like you anymore, they kicked you out, your survival ability just went very low. Um, so I think shame was something that was kind of built in to be like, what is my place in the group? Am I cool? Am I okay? Am I still welcome? You know, because if you think most shame is pretty built on what other people would think, right? I mean, a lot of times. That's uh, what in my always, experience but, with it, yeah. Yeah. Um, so if you came with that problem and you had that, um, first of all, uh, people will tell me all sorts of things that they're scared about, uh, frightened about. And oftentimes it is twisted, weird, messed up, perverse because expressly because it's those things is why your brain gets stuck on it because of shame. Because of anxiety, like I have no, like if I have somebody that said like, um, um, trying to think of an example, um, you know, I have this harm fantasy that I'm going to, uh, that I'm going to, you know, get mad and I'm going to, you know, I'm going to beat my kid to death or something. And this is a a mom that is extremely kind, would never do anything like that. 
but because she's afraid of what she feels like that would say about her character. And the fact that she thinks this thought and what she feels like that says about her character then imbues that with such tremendous shame and anxiety. If you notice, uh, anxiety attacks the things, uh, it doesn't fight fair. It attacks the things that are our vulnerable underbelly and it doesn't have any amount of etiquette or decorum. Uh, there is no low blow. It's going for the low blow. So whatever you feel like is most like sinister and terrible and scary uh, is often what it attaches itself to. It's Yeah, it's always... Uh, I'm going to punch a nun. Like, <laughs> like, <laughs> like what, sorry, there's you know, any amount of things that like no one has any, not no one, very few people have genuine desire to punch nuns, mm -hmm. but they think about that and how embarrassed they would be and how sad they would be and how they don't want that to represent their personhood. What about punching the makers of nuns on the run? <laughs> Man, I, I, that movie was on or HBO. Fuck you, man. Fuck nonsense. Uh, it is habit forming as Dan Goggins likes to tell us. You're welcome. Everyone. Okay. That. Okay. So obviously very complicated stuff, but I yeah. think hearing those things and listen, I've had these conversations with you multiple times. Uh, you and I, I think it's fair to say we'll reach out to each other when we're both, you know, having some trouble with anxiety mm -hmm. and such. And, but even hearing it again, it, it, it helps it. It's helpful for me because one, it makes me feel less alone. Yep. Two, it kind of helps explain, okay, this is actually what's going on. Yeah. You you have this feeling, but mm -hmm. probably what's going on is this, right? The content doesn't matter. That's yeah. the irony. It's what it feels like. That's it's, the it's, amazing oh. thing. It's the, so uh, as an example, so let's take your example. The first thing I would work with uh, on your example of the siren uh, is I would say, um, the I would go through this whole process where I have you do this experiential metaphor where I have you hold up your hands to your face and see how close it is to your face, but that's near here nor there. The, the skill that I would work on is um, I would want you to start noticing when you're having that thought uh, because ultimately um, you are not that thought. You are a place in which your uh, that thought is happening. And so I would ask you to insert four small words each time you have that thought. And all that would be would be, I notice I'm thinking I'm going to stick my head in the um, siren and lose my hearing mm -hmm. versus I'm going to stick my head in the siren and lose my hearing. And I have to stop it right now. Uh, exactly. Yeah. And so do you hear the difference? One of which is buying into the content inherently. I'm going to do that. You know I mean? Like I, or, or what if I do this? Mm -hmm. The other is saying, I notice I'm thinking. There's an inherent skepticism. There's an inherent distance between yourself and the thought by saying, I notice I'm thinking this. Um, because the goal is to try to help you to get distance, your narrative distance, if you think of that in terms of fiction writing, um, we're trying to help you get narrative distance from the thought. Um, and then the second thing I would have you do is use observational language for 10 seconds just to describe what you're thinking and feeling in that moment. I would have you say, I notice I'm thinking that I'm with my head in the siren and lose my hearing. Okay. Notice that my heart is beating more rapidly. Notice I've got some sweat on my hands. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, notice that leads to this other feeling of what would it like to be deaf? Okay. I gave it its time. Now I'm going to return to what I was doing before. That little thing is like, why are you paying this quack? That's nothing. Uh, the reason is, is you just sent a message to your hippocampus that I acknowledged you. I observed it. It's okay. You can still be here and then moving back. Right. And I think it's fair to say that it's not like 
now that I know how to do that, I'm going to just immediately do that every time. No. It's it's exactly it. It very, takes repeated. So because mm-hmm. you on a uh, an implicit level have been sending messages to your hippocampus that this is a big deal over and over and over again, hundreds, maybe thousands of times. So the first time now that you're noticing the thought and you're sending a calm, non-emotive, non-reactive message uh, to your hippocampus, you have to do that over and over and over again to start changing the trajectory of the barge. You know what I mean? Yeah, I get you on that for sure. Um, and, you know, you said something a moment ago. You re- referenced fiction writing. And we didn't really get into it, but I'd like to close with this about how for that time you were really struggling. 2020, yep. half of 21 as you're, you know, going from where your wife said you have no joy towards I'm going to open my own uh, practice. You, you who is somebody who has always loved writing since, well, Shadow Comics, That's right? That's right, yeah. Um, you weren't writing for like a year and a half, right? Yeah. So uh, summer of 2020, I uh, was just so deeply unhappy, uh, just in general, and then also just unhappy. Um, and we talked about this briefly in the first one, but just about um, not being able to land my book in the traditional market. Um, unhappy, bitter, uh, angry, sad, uh, all those things. Um, I just couldn't bring myself to write for about a year and a half. Um, there's also all these other things going on in my life that were making me really, um, really struggle. And so I, um, I really didn't do anything from basically the summer of 2020 to January of 22. Uh, but then when I left my job, started my own practice, it was just such a tremendous burden off my chest, off my back, uh, that I, uh, felt the creative juices flowing again. And I was ready <clears throat> to tackle uh, the sequel to Scab Among the Stars that I was uh, had been thinking about for a long time but had not uh, put the work into uh, yet. So I was able to start that in um, January of 22, basically as soon as I got, got out of my old position. And it felt like a therapy for me. I mean, to, to be able to do that, to escape into that world that I made, uh, felt tremendous. It felt like a renaissance. And um, and it continues to feel that way. I mean, that's the incredible thing is like, um, I think it was, I think I was being slowly boiled uh, in a pot, like when they talk about boiling lobster. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. And I didn't think I realized until I got out of the boiling water, like, good God, I was almost cooked. You know what I mean? Yeah. It feels good to feel normal again. Mm-hmm. So you you mentioned Scab Among the Stars. So mm-hmm. uh, there's going to be links to where you can buy all of your books in the show yeah. notes. But tell us about, about your books, where we can buy them. Again, though, there will be links. And tell us about kind of what you're working on. And, and yeah, share share with us that. Yeah, absolutely. So um, Scab Among the Stars, which you've read, uh, is a dark fantasy book. It's the first book in the Lunar Lives series. Um, akin to uh, Clive Barker, Neil Gaiman, um, uh, China Meville uh, type new weird uh, dark fiction, uh, dark fantasy. And um, uh, so that's Scab Among the Stars. That's the novel. And then um, I have a short story collection called Machines and Fever Dreams that's also available on Amazon um, that is a collection of short science fiction and fantasy kind of macabre stories as well. Um, and then I'm working on the um, the sequel to Scab Among the Stars, which is the working title Echo from the Void. Mm-hmm. And that takes place about 12 cycles, so roughly 12 years after um, the events of Scab Among the Stars, and continues that story, but is also kind of a self-contained story as well. 
I hope to, that's in the beta reader process. So yep. I hope to have that done and uh, all shined up and ready to roll by either December of this year or maybe January of next year. That's kind of what I'm shooting for. Okay. And I, I we recorded uh, Hysteria 51 before we recorded this. And I, I'm going to repeat something I said on there, specifically about Scab Among the Scars. Uh, I was one of your beta readers for that uh, before you published it. And I am not a fantasy guy. Uh, I, I wish I was. I love the idea of world building. I love all of that. But what I will say about this book is even if you don't think you're a fantasy person, it is worth checking out. It's a really good book. It held my attention the whole time. I really did enjoy the world that you were built. And uh, I, I would just highly recommend it to people. For I sure. really appreciate that. Yeah. Thank you. Because it's uh, it is maybe an acquired taste a little bit. Uh, dark fantasy is not for everybody, but I'm glad that it was engaging enough. I have actually another friend that's not a fantasy reader either, and he's like, he was like, I was so glad that the game was a blowout because that meant I could go and read your book. And that, oh, that that's a like, wonderful feeling. Yeah, that was a you know that was a real compliment yeah. for me. So I appreciate it very much. It took I worked for many years writing it, and um, I'm excited uh, for Echo. I think it's I think it's just as good. I really do. I feel really good about it. Awesome. So. And again, like I said, guys, if you're interested and you, sh you know, I, I would really encourage you to check these out. The, the links are in the show notes and that should take you directly to where you can purchase this. Um, so, John, as we're wrapping up, any final thoughts that you want to share with everybody, whatever uh, you, you would like to say before we wrap up? Yeah, um, I would just say that um, my experience with, uh, you know, leaving a. Uh, a position that I was unhappy in and then starting my own thing was was better than I ever could have dreamed or imagined. Um, there's inherent risk, obviously, uh, with, with doing that. But um, for me, it was worth every bit of stress uh, that I experienced. Being your own boss and then being able to uh, rest on your own achievements is... Um, a really transformative experience. And I would say if you have the desire to do that and you have a concrete plan of what you want to do, uh, do it uh, if you can. There are challenging parts about it, but what I have found uh, is that every bit of that uh, is worth, because it's all trade-offs, right? There is no solutions, there's only trade-offs. Um, so um, it's not going to be perfect, but I find that the trade-offs are uh, tremendously worth it in my case. Wow, that's uh, really, uh, really well said. I just nodded a lot, uh, <laughs> which you can't hear, of course, but um, awesome. Well, John, thank you so much for being on. And I, I will say this to you. Um, you are always somebody I have uh, looked up to, who I've admired, and, and what you've done um, by kind of going out on your own here uh, was, was hugely influential for me. And um, I congratulate you. And uh, I have, I had no doubt you would be successful. And I'm, I'm very happy to say for once in my life, I was right. So <laughs> congrats to you. Thank you so much for coming on, man. I really appreciate it. And like I said to everybody, check out those show notes uh, to, to check out John's books. Um, I'll end with the same way I try to end every episode with just a quick reminder that no matter the situation, uh, it's my belief that there's generally always room for kindness and grace. And I think we should all remember that even in, or especially when we're dealing with ourselves. Um, I know I'm very hard on myself every day. And I think that there's always an opportunity and always room for kindness and grace as I go through tough times. And I think that's true for all of us. So just wanted to put that out there and we thank you all for listening. And we'll see you next time on sad times.
You've been listening to a fourth hand joint.